0: joining us. I'm your host, Raquel Feria. I am a doctor in internal medicine at the Centro Hospitalar Universitário in Porto. Today, I will be discussing two challenging cases of lupus with Professors David Eisenberg and Murray Ururovitz from the Lupus Academy Steering Committee. David, Murray, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Raquel. Thank you. Nice to be here.
0: Let's look at the first case. This is a Caucasian uh, woman that she was 55 years old when she was diagnosed with systemic lupus erythematosus and it was in year 2000. She had symmetrical polyarthritis, a photosensitive skin rash, and uh, after that she has pleuritis. She had two rituximab infusions when she developed the pleuritis and did well. And then she was treated with hydroxychloroquine, uh, to uh, 100 milligrams a day, and oral prednisolone five milligrams a day. Three years later, in uh, 2003, she had an up- unprovoked left proximal deep vein thrombosis. She started on dalteparin and started on warfarin after that, and we for targeting an uh, of 2.5 while she was waiting for the antiphospholipid testing. And she was actually positive for lupus anticoagulant and persi- persistent high titers of anti-Beta-2 glycoprotein 1, IgG antibodies. She was diagnosed with thrombotic APS, antiphospholipid syndrome, and the decision was made to continue warfarin long-term. David, this was your patient. Yep. And several years ago, so mm-hmm. it looks like it was... Such a few, but it was several years ago. So, in this case, in this patient, would you decide to treat her in the same way today?
2: Well, as I think is pretty obvious to everybody. Um, these patients with lupus and the antiphospholipid, antibodies of the syndrome, are really amongst the most challenging patients any of us has to deal with, I think. And warfarin, which has been around for uh, over 45, 50 years, uh, clearly in its time was a major advance, but it is rather problematic. It requires a blood test every one or two weeks to make sure that the INR is, is in the right range. Uh, it, cannot, it, it interferes with a number of drugs, lots of foods which can't be eaten with it. So it's a bit of a problem child, really. So it looked very encouraging when approximately 10 12 years ago the doax, the direct oral anticoagulants, came into being and they were widely used and are widely used in a whole range of medical conditions <laughs> uh, and it was hoped I think that uh, this this might play a part in the treatment of patients with uh, with APS uh, yes. but unfortunately it too has become something of a problem child uh, so much so that Justin Timberlake who recorded the song, Cry Me a song Crime your River is now redoing it as crime <laughs> River Oxaban. and I, I think <laughs> <laughs> that sort of highlights the challenge that we face. Uh, the RAPS trial uh, was pertinent to this case in the sense that this was a trial in which patients with unprovoked uh, deep venous thromboses uh, in the main were, were Came into this trial. They were either given warfarin with the target INR of two to three, or they were given uh, river, river oxymount, 20 milligrams per day. And we followed these patients up for seven months, uh, and we had to have a a, a hematological uh, primary endpoint. Uh, And we showed that there was no difference between the two drugs. And so for patients with venous thromboembolism, the the data indicates that, in fact, DOAX can be quite good the trouble is that for patients with triple positive antibodies, now this patient had two, but yes. obviously that's just a that little bit closer to three, uh, it's now recommended following the TRAPS trial which was published by PENGO in 2018 that you should avoid doax so doax remain uh, I, I think potentially very interesting we're still not quite sure of their place in this particular patient I think I would talk to my hematologist and the patient uh, and we would try to go through the, the sort of the pros and cons, she's not triple positive, she's double positive so there's more of an argument for trying a DOAC. Uh, so it would certainly be a matter for discussion with the patients.
0: Thank you. And Marie, is it your current practice? How does it work in Canada for the permission to use DOAX in APS patients? Do you have a problem with that, an issue with that?
1: So I agree with David that we we tend not to uh, uh, use doax, but I think b- before we even go there, <clears throat> you know, in this patient presents, you've got to say, well, which antiphospholipid antibody syndrome does she have? Is it the thrombotic variety alone? And the answer then, I think, is is yes. Or does she have one of the other major types of manifestations, like the microvascular manifestations, such as the thrombotic microangiopathy, or the diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, et cetera? Or does she have, and maybe we'll talk about this later, the non-thrombotic manifestations such as thrombocytopenia or hemolytic anemia and that sort of thing, right? So I think in this woman, we say, okay, she has the thrombotic manifestations and what is the best approach? And it's uh, primarily Venus at this point in time. Yes,
0: yes, yes. And so we
1: would really have that dilemma that David was talking about. We'd say, since she's limited to venous thromboembolism maybe we could use a doa you know but i would say to you that more and more we're because she is she's double positive but she has the important antibodies you know the lupus anticoagulant and the beta okay. 2 glycoprotein one those are the important clotting factors i think i would lean toward treating her with uh, the warfarin as as was done
0: okay A few months later, she developed easy and spontaneous bruising, and the platelets count, which were previously normal, were now uh, 30,000, with normal hemoglobin and leukocyte counts. So I think you were guessing this was going to happen more, uh, Maury. And what do you think that this platelets uh, mean in this uh, global patient with lupus and APS that have been thrombotic in the past. And, um, do you think of other rare severe conditions that could be promptly excluding, what do you think about this?
1: Yeah. So he, now she's sort of, uh, enlarging her syndrome as right? she comes in under yeah. one of those, uh, non thrombotic, the thrombocytopenic, uh, variety. Uh, And this presents a little bit of a dilemma. Uh, Once you develop into, once you progress into that, those second stages or or other stages, um, I think the whole issue of immunosuppression becomes uh, a a factor uh, that one must consider. Um, And I think the first approach here that the patient uh, had, are we up to the fact that she got steroid yet?
0: Yes, she has five milligrams
1: yeah, so, steroid. Yeah, so no, that's her basic therapy. Yes, but I think yes. in order to treat the, the thrombocytopenia, I think the first approach would be to increase her steroids and see what the response is like. Uh, and uh, if the response is good and sustained, then I would slowly wean the steroid and follow her carefully. Unfortunately, that frequently isn't the case. In other words, we reduce yeah. this. First of all, we're very happy that they respond to steroid, and then when you take the steroid away, they relapse again. And then that raises the whole question of further immunosuppression in these patients. So I think the first step would be to give her steroid, uh, see what the response is, wean the steroid down, and see what happens.
0: As before you were saying, some types of APS uh, are more prone to microangiopathy. So do you think that you would treat her with steroids and then see what happens? Uh, or do you feel comfortable uh, to exclude uh, microangiopathy before giving her steroids? Uh, of course, the, the hemoglobin is normal, so we are not thinking that she has amolytic anemia, but do, would you exclude this before uh, giving her steroids?
1: Well, I think you know the other. No, no. I would give her the steroids for the platelets. I mean, once Absolutely. the platelets start to fall, you, you need to treat the platelets because that has its own consequences. But uh, she didn't report any of the other features. You know, she obviously has to be investigated for her kidney dysfunction, and yes. and does she have pulmonary hemorrhage, and 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 some, and then as you said, the hemolytic anemia. So there are a number of things to look at for the non-thrombotic manifestations. She didn't have any of those at this point in time. So I think, uh, or certainly, caps would be the other thing that people think about, but that's a very uncommon manifestation. She certainly did not have manifestations of that. So that's why I said my first approach would be rather conservative in quotation marks. I treat the steroid, treat her with steroid for the platelets, see what the response is, and then make the decision whether further immunosuppression for one of these non-thrombotic microvascular manifestations is indicated.
0: Thank you, David. We are talking about how to treat and what to do if she's recur, but in a more uh, practical point of view, the patient emailed you or the GP emailed you or called you. What would you do? would you advise her to do? To go to the A&E, to come to the hospital? Is she's going to be admitted? Is she's going to be on a day hospital care? In a practical point of view, uh, What is your approach to this kind of of manifestations?
2: So just a word of background, before I I will promise to answer your question. Mm -hmm. So I I always think of thrombocytopenia as linking to lupus in three ways. Uh, There are patients who present with what seems to be ITP, uh, you follow them up and about 15 percent of them will eventually go on to develop lupus. Many lupus patients have a, 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 well, is an exaggeration, some lupus patients have run a sort of low-ish sort of platelet count, something between about 80 and 140. and those are the patients that I have in the main who have the APS associated thrombocytopenia. And then there are the patients who rather like this one, the platelets which have been normal for years suddenly just descend, they just disappear. And it's as if a clone of antiplatelet antibody uh, cells has, has, has emerged uh, and that's the cause of the problem. And I'd, certainly I, I would support what Murray said in the first instance, uh, I want to give steroids. And if she phoned up and she said, I have easy bruising, something's going wrong, I would certainly get her up to the, uh, to our casualty department, the, um, the, uh, the ER. Uh, we'd obviously check the platelet count immediately. Uh, and if it's fallen, suddenly if it's fallen below 30, then I think you're going to be giving this patient high doses of steroids, uh, as a trial to see if it's going to work. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't work, then there are, we move on to other immunosuppressive options uh, and there are older, more traumatic ways to go, which I suspect we'll be talking about in a moment and some new ways to just go to, but this is a, potentially an emergency and you must treat it as such.
0: Okay. Thank you. And uh, would you think, uh, Marie, that you would do the same? You would just say, come to the hospital and then we'll we'll see what what to do and you'll admit the, the, the patient if she has this kind of low, pretty low platelets?
1: Well, uh, whether I would admit it or not, I'm not sure. <laughs> that depends on the, the the availability of beds in this in this day and age. But I would certainly see her, and that and a decision would be made, ruling out all of those other features we talked about. Saying we're dealing with the platelets alone, and the first treatment would be steroid. Uh, I, was, I would I uh, would uh, be willing to treat that as an outpatient, but following her very carefully, seeing her as often as need be. Um, okay. To monitor okay. The response.
0: Okay, I think this is very important for every doctors that are listening to us uh, all over the world that uh what is the current practice even in dealing with do you see her do you deal with this by email or phone? So I think that we all agree that you need to see her and see if the the treatment is is having a, a good result. At that time, warfarin was stopped and uh, prednisone was increased to 60 milligrams a day, resulting in a rise in her platelets after two weeks to normal uh, count, 150. And when the prednisone alone was titrated down, her thrombocytopenia recurred. So, David, this is definitely what we you were discussing. Uh, so, a high-dose steroid-dependent thrombocytopenia. Currently, what do you think are the different strategies that you are going to use with this, with this, okay. with this
2: so, so this is a, obviously a disappointing situation for the patient and the physician, because you realise you're not going to control the situation with steroids alone. You're going to have to up the ante, up your game. And certainly in the old days, we would have moved, I used to move to azathioprine. Uh, And we tried that probably for two or three months with with a slightly higher dose of steroids. If that didn't work, and I have to confess it often didn't work, uh, certainly before 2000, the next thing to be considered was splenectomy. Now, splenectomy was pretty successful in lots of patients. Uh, I did a review about 25 years ago uh, looking at all the patients who'd had a splenectomy both for lupus and for APS. It was actually, uh, in the APS context, particularly successful. Amongst lupus patients, we reported that between four and five out of six patients had got a good response. And uh, Perhaps I shouldn't actually say this, but actually, if you took somebody's spleen out, that gave you an awful lot of, of very useful research material. I, I remember with one patient, I, I gave a large <laughs> chunk of the spleen to Peter Madison, uh, an old friend of mine most of us who said, my God, there's 3,000 years worth of experiments here. Uh, but that 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 went with the introduction of rituximab, which, of course, came in uh, following its approval by the FDA uh, in uh, 1997 for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, my colleagues, uh, Joe Edwards and Joe Cambridge, were the first to use it for rheumatoid in 1999. And then we began to use it for lupus in 2000. And it's very interesting that rituximab has a differential effect in terms of its rate of, of, of improvement in different organs and systems. And the hematological system is the one which responds the fastest, both for patients with uh, with significant. Pro- um, um- uh, reduction in, in their platelets, and for autoimmune hemolytic anemia, it's profoundly successful, very very quickly. So that's the approach that we would now we would now use. We've now treated 200, literally two hundred patients with lupus at our centre, and it's low platelets and low hemoglobins which respond the fastest. Arthritis, skin rashes may all respond, but they take a month or two. Renal diseases often often longer than that. But these patients, we would now have a very low threshold to give them rituximab, and we would expect to see a response within a matter of days or a week or two at the most.
0: Marie, I guess that probably is your experience also. But uh, as David said, azathioprine is not quite um, uh, special for for getting these patients uh, controlled. What is your experience with azathioprine and uh, MMF in um, SLE and APS-related immune thrombocytopenia?
1: So we haven't used azathioprine in a long time. uh, and, and have used uh, MMF as uh, David suggested. And again, it's um, slow and makes you nervous while you're waiting yeah. for the platelets to come up and uh, not always successful. So we do tend to use the intravenous, the intravenous approaches, like the, either rituximab or even the uh, uh, urolupus uh, cyclo protocol mm-hmm. uh, to get more rapid response. So I agree with David that that's, that's the route we would go. But let me I'll bring up one other issue. This this is an acute event. and The platelet counts are very low and frighten you and the patient is having bleeding, etc. You may have to tide them over. So you can either tide them over with massive doses of steroid again, or you can add IVIG. Remember, this is not a permanent treatment. This helps in the short run. So it can help tide you over until the other drug, whether it's Ritux or cyclo or, or MMF until they kick in. So that is something that we sort of keep in hand, you know, as a, uh, as a, as a helpful intervention in the short run, by the way, we don't do splenectomy. We don't even think about splenectomy anymore because I agree with David. It seems to have an effect just like IVIG has an effect in the short run. But if you follow these patients long enough, their lupus recurs, and the problem recurs anyway. So we tend not to consider splenectomy at all at that, at this point.
2: Yeah, I agree. We, we we've not done one for 20 years. But could I ask you both? Our, our problem with IVIG is simply getting hold of it. We have a committee yeah. in the hospital which judges every single case, and it's really a tough battle to get them to agree. It's expensive. Is that the same? Is true with your place? Your place? Yeah, it's the
1: same. But you know, David, we go through the same problem with rituximab. You know, we have to get on. <laughs> we have to get on our knees and beg our hematology confreres yeah. For either one of those treatments. So you're right that, that it's harder for the rheumatologist to get, uh, for us to get Ritux or or IV, IVIG. So we keep good relationships with our hematology conferers. In,
2: in, in, our, in our place, I think Ritux is about in the tap water. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> yeah,
0: and there's, of course, the concern about IVIG that... It, they are not large amounts. They are based on on donors. So, and during the pandemic, the pandemic period, it was really, really we had shortcuts in all the the, the IVIG supplies. So, right it really needs to be uh, safely used. And this is a question for both of you. Um, do you consider uh, thrombopoietin agonists in SLE and APS patients to um, rise the platelets, um.
2: Well, I, I can answer because we, we've had this problem come up uh, twice in the last couple of years. Actually, um, in the main, we found rituximab to be very successful in this situation. But for the last, in the last two years, we had two patients where it didn't work, and they did respond to these antagonists actually, and, and they've remained on them. Um, um, these were very two particularly challenging patients. One, one of whom very sadly died just a couple of months ago. Uh, so, if rituximab doesn't work, then then uh, I think it's something which which is which can be considered again if you can get a hold of it.
0: Marik, do you yeah, use it? Yeah, we've not.
1: You no, know, we. Don't, I. I. If if it's difficult to get rituximab or IVIG, it's under the question to get uh, those agonists. Anyway, I. I. I think that if I were in trouble, the platelets were very low, I would be using either steroid and uh, or IVIG, hoping that the immunosuppressive drug will kick in. Now there will be the occasional patient, as David described who's not responsive to anything. And then you go to your hematologist and you get down on both knees, Stein.
0: (laughs) Murray, let's not forget, because we are talking theoretically, yes. Let's not forget that she had a thrombotic event less than six months before. So, and she's double positive for antiphospholipid antibodies, the bad ones. And she has pretty low and unstable platelets, and having low platelets in APS does not prevent thrombosis. So what, what is your strategy to prevent thrombosis in APS, thrombotic APS patients with low platelets?
1: Yeah, that's an important question. And there may be some discrepancies differences in, in approach here. We tend to continue anticoagulation. There are some people saying when the platelets get very low, hold the anticoagulants, treat the platelets, and then restart. I I worry about that because the woman has, you know, she only has double antibody positivity. I, but those are the important antibodies. So uh, to me, that's equivalent to triple. So I think she's a real threat. So I would like very much not to stop anticoagulation. Now, of course, she's going to have to be monitored very carefully.
0: And would you, would you continue with warf- warfarin or would you change to a, a low-weight uh, epirin?
1: I, I I think in this f- state, because I'd like to be able to reverse should anything go on, I would use low molecular weight heparin yep. and then transition into uh, warfarin later.
2: Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, we, uh, two years ago, three years ago now, we, we had truly the most challenging patient I think I've ever had Exactly the sort of situation. Lupus with APS, platelets, kept, kept dipping. And in a period of six months, she had four cerebral events. Two turned out to be due to clots and two due to bleeds. And it was hellishly difficult to try to get the balance right. And in the end, we just about did it. by We, we figured that she, her platelet count needed to be above 90 to help prevent the bleeds. That's for, That was the figure th- for her that we worked out. But we kept her on heparin, uh, watching the dose very, very closely and varying the dose quite a bit as well. These are very difficult problems to manage. Right.
0: Yeah. And fortunately, she was followed in UCLH with you, and it was 2003. So she was treated with Rituximab, followed by normalization of her platelet count, and warfarin was restarted. Later, 10 years later, in 2013, she was recruited for the RAPS trial, as you mentioned before, and she was randomized to Rivaroxaban, 20 milligrams a day, which she Tolerate it. Uh, so, uh, David, you already discussed, uh, the, the NOAAX in APS. Mary, you also discussed it. So I think that do you want to have anything on, on this discussion of this patient for the current practice and even for future practice, uh, on, on, uh, thrombocytopenia in lupus and APS?
2: Only to say that, obviously, when we did the RAPS trial, we were not aware at that point of, of the results of, of, of Prisipengo because he hadn't started his trial. Uh, so we felt okay to do it. And to be fair, in the RAPS trial, um, I think 27% of the patients were actually triple positive, uh, and we didn't have any problems, any, any bleeds or, or any clots. So they're not a complete no-no at all, I think. And certainly for venous unprovoked um, problems uh, in lupus APS patients, I think it's actually okay to consider using them. Uh, especially if there are problems as there may well be sometimes managing the warfarin, which can be a very hard drug to control at times. So we still need to do more trials. They're difficult to do. Mm -hmm. as I think you probably know uh, we're, we're doing a thing called the, the RISAP study at the moment which we ta- we've taken 40 patients with arterial thromboses whose target INR is 3 to 4 and we're comparing them we're, we're matching, so, well We so half the patients are on that, half are on a higher dose of rivaroxaban than is usually given so they're on 20 milligrams, they're on 30 milligrams. Uh, this phase 2 trial is fully recruited, uh, it's been going now for approximately 20 months and we've seen no major bleeds with that dose of rivaroxaban incidentally and, certainly, and No major clots either. So it's so far so good. Uh, But obviously we have to wait for the the thing to go through. It's a two-year follow-up with an endpoint looking at some very fancy um, uh, neurological scanning of the brain.
0: Thank you so much. I think this case was very uh, exciting and uh, we learned uh, how to manage thrombocytopenia both in represent APS, how to deal with all the other complications and what to do with anticoagulation. So difficult case, I think pretty, pretty exciting highlights from both. So I think we are capable of moving to the next case, the second case. In this case, a 19-years-old female was diagnosed with SLE in 1953. So you heard me well, 1953. Lupus manifestations included polyarthritis, pericarditis, and the most significant involvement was skin involvement with photosensitivity and malar and discoid rashes. There had, uh, they had no clinical or laboratory evidence of ever having nephritis. On the next 20 years, her skin was the most significant involvement and she needed daily steroids, but every attempt to tap a steroids below 20 milligrams a day resulted in significant flares. She was treated with the but despite that, she continued to require steroids to control symptoms. When she was 39 years old, with an history of 20 years of steroid-treated uh, SLE skin involvement, she presented to the emergency room for evaluation of an acute retrosternal chest pain. On physical examination, she was, fu- she was found to be hypertensive. The electrocardiogram showed evidence of an old anterolateral myocardial uh, infarction and diffuse uh, segment ST depres- depressions. Cardiac enzymes were elevated. Murray, this is one patient of your course, one of your patients. So this patient had had previous pericarditis flare. What do you think needs to be addressed with this past history and the current clinical presentation?
1: So uh, thank you, Raquel. I, I present this patient because she was among the first that... Um, highlighted the importance of this comorbidity in lupus. And so she's of historical interest. Um, but anyway, it's a it's a classic presentation. Here's a woman with persistently active lupus in the era when there weren't a lot of treatments for lupus. Yes. And uh, I guess we weren't as uh, cognizant of the impact of steroids over a long period of time. And, and she presents, she had that well-documented pericarditis in the past and now presents with chest pain. So the interns in the emergency department said, well, she's had a recurrence of her pericarditis, but when you listen to her and, and examined her and she had severe retrosternal chest pain and she had, uh, uh, which was, and she noted was different from her pericarditis pain. And when she had her EKG, which showed an old anterolateral myocardial infarction, we had to change our thinking. You know, this is not a recurrence of her pericarditis. This is something else. And so she was admitted, and then uh, I'm sure the story will continue, and the story evolved. It
2: was indeed something else.
0: David, what are your hypotheses at this point?
2: I'm sure both of you have had the same experience that I've had. There are certain patients who just haunt your your mind because of things that have happened to them. And when I read this history, uh, I immediately thought of a patient who we saw probably about 14 years or so after Murray saw this patient in '87, a delightful Irish woman. Uh, and I remember. Uh, Martin Richter, who uh, Murray might remember, was, was involved in the very early uh, studies of of, the, of our two groups, c- coming to see me to say he just didn't understand. This patient was complaining of pain around her shoulder, but he was moving her shoulder around. She seemed absolutely fine. He, he just didn't know what was wrong with her. And he asked me to come and have a look, and I examined her shoulder. There was nothing wrong with the shoulder, and she seemed fine. There was no history. Next day, she died of a massive myocardial infarction. And uh, ever since then, uh, I have been extremely mindful of of any uh, odd, potentially referred pains uh, coming from the heart, because this can happen, this does happen occasionally, and it's quite frightening. She was 37, I think, when she died. Uh, Quite shocking. It It still haunts me to this day, actually.
0: And so moving on to the evolution, shortly after being admitted to the hospital, she developed worsening chest pain. Repeated electrocardiograms showed worsening ST depressions and acute ST elevation. So she rapidly decompensated and died soon uh, after uh, of an acute uh, myocardial infarction. The autopsy revealed cardiomegaly, the generalized atherosclerosis with severe disease of all coronary arteries. All of them were occluded by old recanalized thrombi. So this was not only an acute thrombie as uh, we've previously uh, thought by the electrocardiogram. She had mild disease of the aorta, moderate disease of uh, iliac arteries and severe disease of left renal artery. She was uh, evidence, uh, she had evidence of an old and, uh, anterolateral infarction and new anteroceptal infarction. The pathologists concluded this patient is of interest from many points of view, one of which is the development of such severe atherosclerotic, atherosclerotic disease as such an early age in a non-diabetic female. So she died when she was 39 years old of severe atherosclerosis in 19. 19- 73 there are we are thinking that fortunately this doesn't happen right now fortunately but actually um, there are some patients that are, are doing steroids uh, high dose steroids uh, for several reasons so Marie, I'm um, starting with you this is well one of your cases so with your experience from the Toronto lupus court who why is cardiovascular events and the events so important as a comorbidity in patients with SLE?
1: So, do you have a year or so? Um, you want me to summarize our 40 or 50 years of experience in this area? <laughs> <laughs> well, look, it, it's it's really very interesting because um, when you live a lifetime and see a paradigm shift entirely in, in a condition You you have a very different perspective. Look, when this started in our first studies, we said nine to thirteen percent of people at any point in time are going to have will have in the in the cohort will have had an atherosclerotic vascular event. So very significant. It was then showed that uh, that atherosclerosis an atherosclerotic event continued to increase in prevalence over time. And became an important cause of mortality. So, you know, if you have this, you are subject to earlier mortality. As a matter of fact, early, within the first five years of disease, the major causes of mortality are lupus and infection. If you get out around between 10 and 20 years, the major causes of mortality are infection again and atherosclerosis. Lupus becomes very uncommon as a manifestation. So the longer you live, the more likely atherosclerosis is going to kill you. So it's an important comorbidity. It's associated with mortality and morbidity. Because in the early phases, you can have angina, you can have heart failure. So the patient's life is altered dramatically. So there's important comorbidity implications. And then, of course, if you're sick with this and a young person there's a hell of a lot of uh, increased utilization of health resources, you know, in young women. Mm-hmm. These are things that only old people are supposed to get, you know, like heart evaluations and cardiac catheterizations. And here you're having it in 28, 30 year old women. And uh, mm-hmm. so there's an increased health resource utilization and cost. So it's a big, co- a major comorbidity. So all of that prompted everybody to start looking for detecting this earlier. So we did all kinds of studies in people who were still asymptomatic because we knew they were possible candidates. So they were asymptomatic and you could do cardiac perfusion studies, you could do uh, carotid ultrasound studies or et cetera, various studies to investigate subclinical disease. And what did we find? Somewhere around 25 to 30% of people with no symptoms in lupus had subclinical disease. So that really made us now say address that issue and start looking into treating those subclinical diseases earlier, right? And we've done that. So I just to summarize and bring it to a, to a head, in the modern era, and this came out of the slick studies that, that David has referred to a number of times today, uh, we were doing the prevalence of uh, this is the slick study is a cohort of patients, started in the year 2000 and until the present time. So the modern era, so to speak. We looked at the prevalence of, uh, of atherosclerotic events and instead of nine to 13%, it was 4%. So we said, ah, oh, we don't believe that. So we took our cohort and we took those patients seen between 1975 and 1987 the old age, old time, and the new era, 1999 to 2011, then followed for another seven years to 2018, the modern era. And what did we find? In the old era, it was around 10%. In the modern era, it was around 3%, 3 to 4%. So something has happened. And what, what are those things that have happened? Well, we're treating the risk factors early the hype. we're treating, the blood pressure, the cholesterol, the diabetes, we've stopped people from smoking, all of those things. The other thing that's happened is the amount of disease in the first five years of lupus is significantly lower now than it was in the 70s and 80s. Why? We're treating it more aggressively. We have more drugs that are available to treat it. So by treating the disease, and the risk factors were may having a major impact. So to have lived through that, to see the dramatic effect of atherosclerosis on lupus, and the dramatic improvement in the modern era has been a very gratifying. Uh, oh my God! It sounds like I'm t- giving you my eulogy here. <laughs> <laughs> has had a very dramatic uh, impact a very gratifying impact uh, in our treatment. Sorry to drag on.
0: No worry. Great. David. What is your experience
2: in UCL? So I, I, want, I think it would be appropriate at this point to pay tribute to Murray, because it was really Murray in the 70s who drew our attention oh. to this, uh, and, I, and I think it influenced a great deal of people, including, I think, Sumanzi, whose paper, which often gets quoted in 1998, showing that if you're a woman and you're between 35 and 44, you're having, your chances of having a heart attack are increased by 50 times, was a, a pretty worrying uh, report as well. Uh, and I'd like to highlight some work that was done by Sara Croker from, from Portugal, that she did this work with my colleague Alison Rahman so about Mm -hmm. 10 years ago they took 100 asymptomatic patients with lupus relatively young patients late 30s early 40s and they did some very sophisticated scanning of both the uh, femoral arteries and the carotid arteries Uh, and much to their surprise they identified that a third just over a third 36 out of 100 patients had significant plaque with no previous history of this whatsoever. They follow them up, and we've, they've just published the paper. It came out in, in uh, December. Uh, my colleague, Jody Bakshi, was the first author. Uh, and I think seven of those 36 patients have gone on to have major uh, um um, uh, um, uh, ischemic events so you know you can use scanning here if you uh, if you have the capacity to do it to to identify some of these patients who are, who are more at risk but I think the points Murray made are are absolutely on the money why is it getting better it's getting better because we treat more aggressively because we're very much more mindful now of persuading lupus patients to try to stop smoking uh eat, eat to eat better uh but to certainly to treat faster and more aggressively and I think that's that certainly has helped.
1: Raquel, if, I could, if, if I could add one other issue, of one other thing is, now is that uh, the American Heart Association, American Car- Car- College of Cardiology have now come out with new guidelines for treatment of hypertension. It used to be that if you had 140 over 90, you were okay. Above that was hypertensive. It's now been recalibrated as 130 over 80. And we've actually done a study looking at our patients who were 140 over 90, 130 over 80, and those who are always normal, and there's a dramatic effect. In other words, those that are 140 over 90 have significantly more atherosclerotic events. Those who are above 130 over 80 also have significantly more events, and only when you get below 130 over 80 do you have very low events. So we're now actually treating our hypertension even with better drugs, but also to achieve lower levels, to get 130 over 80 rather than 140 over 90.
0: Of course. I have... um, We are almost finishing, so I have two issues that I would like to hear your comments on. First thing is this patient was severely diseased from lupus with need of such a high dose of steroids because of skin. So... How severe can yeah. be a skin involvement in SLE uh, to make you heat harder? To treat the disease. David, can you comment on this? Well,
2: I, I would say that, and uh, I, I, I know, Murray I agree about this, the best dose of steroids is the lowest possible dose for the shortest possible period of time. Uh, and whatever you have to do to, to achieve that, you have to achieve it, whether it's by adding in more classic, older immunosuppressants like mycophenolate or we now have been Lister, uh, anifrolomam, for example. Uh, uh, my colleague from Leeds, Ed, Ed Vital, showed some beautiful pictures at ULA last year. Seven or eight patients who'd failed, very severe skin problems, failed absolutely. Absolutely everything, uh, up to and including rituximab, given anifrolumab, and it worked beautifully. So I, I think that we are moving generally to an era where it's been so painful, uh, as as you both know, in, in lupus to see how far behind we are with our bi- biologic therapies compared to rheumatoid and psoriatic arthritis. But we're slowly, but we are getting there. Uh, Benista clearly works for some patients at least, and anifrolumab do, does hold the hope that even for those very tough to treat patients, it, it can be very helpful for the skin. And keep the steroids away.
0: Murray, If you, uh, I'm sure that both of you have so much more experience than me. But in my patients, some of them are so used to steroids and they are ready accessible. So they increase this themselves because they don't feel okay because the skin just went some other wrong, and they don't even get in touch with us before the next appointment just to say, "Oh, oh well, I increased the steroids, so because I was needing it." Murray, please, what would you say to a patient today about the use of steroids on their own and all the concerns that are beneath it?
1: Yeah, that's so important. And, and, you know, it can only be done face to face. You have to sit down with the patient. And again, go over the side effects. You know, I say it's a great drug; it's a terrible drug. And then I spend the next fifteen minutes telling him why it's terrible. And many of them have heard that already. You know, the patient groups that get together—they—they um, they are hearing these kind of lectures. And I think more and more are accepting the fact they should be on no steroid. I agree with David. Five or less, zero is the best uh, for a short period of time. So. And, and now, at least, we have alternatives. David's correct. You know, belimumab has been shown to be effective on the skin. Anafrolumab has been shown to be effective. There are a number of other drugs now under investigation phase 2 studies that all, all target skin and joint and have been shown to be effective in skin. So I think we're getting to a place where we have alternatives. Now, of course, there's the second issue. We've got to get the payers to pay for it. Sometimes we have great drugs, but either the insurance or the government isn't willing to pay for it. That's another battle. But the fact that we have all of those agents will help us to minimize and hopefully eliminate steroids. So so we use it for a short time, put out the fire, take away the water and then give them other drugs.
0: Thank you so much. I think that we are going through uh, exciting times and, uh, Thank you so much for these insights for both thrombocytopenia and the cardiovascular and uh, terosclerotic comorbidity. David Murray, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your insights. To our listeners, we hope these discussions have helped you gain more of an understanding of lupus. Do send us feedback on cases you would like us to discuss in the future. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please leave us a review, which will really help us in reaching as many of your colleagues as possible around the world. Join us again next time.